Hello, and welcome to the Queen Behavior Change Podcast. That's queen-like royalty and behavior change, like turning over a new leaf. Our show is a resource for therapists to help their clients change. A couple quick announcements. This show is intended for adults. It is also important to say that this podcast is not medical or psychological advice, nor is it treatment. This episode was recorded during September 2021, during Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. We cover the topic of suicide in this show and provide resources for professionals. If you're an individual struggling with thoughts of not wanting to live anymore, I'll tell you the same thing that I tell many of my patients. 1-800-273-TALK is a great resource, as well as 911 if you're in a crisis. Welcome to the show, Dr. Friedenthal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for your time today. I would love to start out in the beginning. I'd love to have the guests introduce themselves. So I'd love to hear, you know, whatever you would like to share with the listeners. Well, thanks. Um, so my name is Stacy Friedenthal and I am an associate professor at the graduate school of social work at the university of Denver. I'm also a psychotherapist in private practice where I, um, mainly specialize in people who have, in helping people who have suicidal thoughts or have attempted suicide or sadly have lost somebody to suicide and, I'm a writer. I wrote a book, Helping the Suicidal Person, Tips and Techniques for Professionals. And I love cats. That's Perfect. something else about me. I love the fun fact. And also for anyone that's listening right now, in the show notes, I will link Dr. Friedenthal's book. So I will put that in the show notes. And so today, what I was hoping to go over, especially from the content in your book, uh, are helpful tips and techniques for professionals. And I know that there are 89 tips that are in the full book. And I was thinking that today we could talk about a couple. Uh, Sure. so, So we had emailed a little bit about possible tips to go over, but really any of the ones that you think are important, I would love to discuss today. Um, so what are some of the tips that, that you would like to talk about today? Well, um, you said any that I think are important. And of course, I think all 89 are important. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think of this as like a preview for that. Obviously, you would want to know all 89 for the record, for the record. <laughs> and of course, I am completely biased. So, um, so when I say that, Uh, I acknowledge my bias, Um, but, you know, I don't know. It's hard for me to say what's the most, you know, which are the most important tips. I mean, I think the, some of the most important takeaways I would say um, are, you know, managing as a clinician, managing your fears around working with somebody who has suicidal thoughts. Uh, There's so much fear. You know, I encounter this even with very experienced clinicians. They they kind of tiptoe around the topic of suicide. You know, they don't want to ask somebody, do you have thoughts of killing yourself or are you thinking of suicide? Instead, they say things like, 
do you think of hurting yourself or do you think of harming yourself and it's a euphemism and there's overlap between self-harm and suicide but they're not the same thing you know I couldn't agree more. And sometimes the language I use is, do you have thoughts of not wanting to live anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I work with children. And so sometimes some of the bigger vocabulary words, they might not know. Um, and so sometimes uh, I'll say that. And I, I work a lot with trainees as well. And I've worked with trainees over the years. And I think that w- it's interesting what you were saying about how this is something that people are afraid of at all different stages in their training and in their career. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I agree with you, first of all, that with children, the language needs to be simpler. And also that it can be really useful to start with passive ideation. You know, do you ever feel so bad that you wish you could just go to sleep and never wake up? Or do you ever wish you weren't alive anymore? Or as you said, you ever not want to live anymore? You know, those are still getting at the the idea of of wanting to end one's existence or wishing one didn't exist. Yeah. And and I I love the perspective taking approach, you know, thinking about why are clinicians so terrified of this? And I mean, I have my own hypotheses. What are some of yours? Um, that That's a good question. And I'll be curious to hear yours too. I think at, at the most fundamental level, you know, we want to help somebody and we don't want somebody to die, you know, and it, it could be that we have a relationship with them and we, we care about them just as we would anybody, but it also could be it's somebody you've known for five minutes and you're, you know, in in an intake and they reveal suicidal thoughts and you still don't, even though you don't know them, you, you care about them. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the movie Sense of a Woman. Have you seen that with Al Pacino? I haven't, but I will write a note to watch it. I always am looking for things to uncover and watch. I think it's Al Pacino and Matt Damon, and it's about this um, older man who has a plan to kill himself, and this young man has been hired to basically spend time with him, and to, I I don't remember if it's explicit in the movie, because I saw it years ago, but the gist is that, you know, he's there to keep him company and try to protect him, and he walks in when Al Pacino uh, has a firearm, and he wrestles with him and, and he doesn't really know him. Al Pacino hasn't been kind to him. You know, they don't really have a relationship, but it's just an innate instinct, I think, to try to protect somebody and to try to, to help them. And, and so I think that's one reason people are afraid is that they, you know, they they fear the person's death. And I also think pragmatically people are afraid of, having a client die by suicide and then being blamed or even sued, you know, and feeling like they failed, quote, quote, you know, I don't, I don't see it uh, that way. I don't blame the clinician, um, but they may feel that they failed or were inadequate. You know, that's one of the things when I do trainings and I ask people what they're afraid of and 
they go into small groups and they discuss it with each other and then they report back what um, the groups said. And one of the fears is that I won't be competent. Absolutely. Like that's one reason they're afraid of even asking if the person has suicidal thoughts is because they fear they won't know what to do. They won't be able to help. They will feel overwhelmed. So I think, you know, there's, there's many different reasons for fear and, and it's, um, it's complex. It's complex and it's not. Yeah. I I agree with all of your reasons. And, and I think that I have personally struggled with those fears throughout my training throughout my professional career. And, and I, I would add to it that I, I really love dialectical behavior therapy. And I really love the idea of radical acceptance, not just for clients, but for us as therapists. And, you know, there are a lot of things that I cannot control. I can search the best suicidality experts in the country and interview them. I can read their books. I can go to trainings. I can document, I can do everything in my power to try to keep people alive. And, and that is still sometimes not some sort of magic bullet that just eliminates suicide. And so I think part of it is that I accept that I, I cannot control someone else. And I, if I decide to work with clients that experience, you know, suicidal ideation or, um, other elements of the, the spectrum of suicidality, I risk that in my career, I will treat someone and they will die. Um, and so I think that the way that I think about it is I can control everything on, on my end. Um, and that's all that I can do. And that is a really scary thing to admit. Uh, and I, so for me, part of it is that I am interested in this because I think as therapists, it is on us to try to help suicidal people. And I don't want to exclude them from my practice or from the practice of my trainees. And so I think the only way that I can accept them is to do everything that I can on my end. And so I think that to your point of competence, I try to really work on the competence side of it um, and then accept anything where my competence is, is not able to control it. So I think sometimes other people, maybe their interest or what brought them into therapy is not about becoming competent in, in suicidality. It's about becoming competent in something else. And so it could just be resources or just not wanting to face that fear for whatever personal reason they have, um, philosophical, whatever. So I, I don't know if that makes sense, but for me, it's a lot about radical acceptance. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. And it, it very much mirrors um, something that I've written. I, I didn't mention in my little introduction that I have a website, speakingofsuicide.com. And there's a post I wrote in there about, it was even before I was a mental health professional, a friend of mine was going through major suicidal crises, which is a weird word to use because there's not really minor suicidal crises, but there were uh, very harrowing times with her. And one time she came to my house very late at night and had already uh, made a suicide attempt before she came. And in the process of us talking at night, I realized she was bleeding. 
And so long story short, I took her to the emergency room and she did not want to be admitted as an inpatient. And they said she didn't meet criteria for commitment. So they discharged her to my house and I wasn't even in this field yet. And the emergency room physician took me aside and talked to me about getting all the knives and pills, putting them in a pillowcase and then locking them in the trunk of my car and keeping my car key in my pocket. I slept in the living room so that I could uh, be by the front door and back door because I was like right in the middle. And I had this notion that I would be able to save her. And, you know, at some point I realized I've got to go to the bathroom, (laughs) you know, and I've got to fall asleep. And it was this really sobering moment, both sobering, but also liberating to realize that I had limitations. And, and so in this piece, I wrote, wrote about like accepting that I couldn't stop her from killing herself. She could run out that door and, you know, the, the most I could do if I caught up with her was tackle her, but then what, <laughs> you know? And so I have in that post, and I think this is what you were saying, and that's do everything you can, but no, you can't do everything. And yeah, a thousand percent. And I'm also going to link that post in the show notes. Cause I think that's, I'm going to read that article myself. I, I think I will relate a lot to it and find it comforting to know I'm not alone in this line of thinking. Yeah. And a lot of people have told me, not only clinicians, but family have told me that it helped them to be able to say to themselves, I mean, it's horrifying on the one hand, oh my gosh, I can't stop this person from dying, even with everything I know and try and do. But on the other hand, it's liberating because it's like, okay, I don't have to be perfect and I don't have to try to play God. Now, the danger, I think, is that some people go in the opposite direction. And, you know, I think know everything you can, I mean, do everything you can, but no, you can't do everything, which by the way, that no has a double meaning. It could be N-O, but I mean it K-N-O-W. To me, that's a middle ground between trying to, um, you know, do everything to the point of sacrificing yourself and being, you know, having a savior complex and rescuing the person at one end of the extreme or at one end of the continuum. And then at the other end of the continuum is this kind of nihilistic, um, well, I can't save them. And if somebody wants to kill themselves, they're going to. So I really don't need to do anything. Like I, that's not at all what I want to convey. I think the middle ground is do what you can because there are many things we can do both, you know, as clinicians and just as human beings. And so like you were saying, like, you know, become as competent as you can in talking with somebody about their suicidal thoughts, doing a risk assessment, um, talking with them about planning for safety, the things they can, you know, making a plan for what they can do if they have suicidal thoughts, doing things to try to build hope in them that things can change to try to build understanding in them of what their suicidal thoughts mean and why they're having suicidal thoughts and you know what what is that signaling that is hurting inside of them that needs attention 
you know, uh, coping, teaching coping skills, doing a hope box. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we can do. In fact, I have 89 tips, yes. <laughs> but um, so there are all these things we can do. So, you know, please, anybody who's listening to this, I hope they don't take this away as saying, well, I can't stop somebody from dying. So why I'm not going to try. And I have had people say that to me. I, I will add to your list of things that we can do. There's a training on the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale website. Um, so I will link the training in the show notes. I will also link the Brown and Stanley uh, patient safety plan. It says the six step uh, patient safety plan that, that I like. So I will link those in the notes. These are resources for professionals. I'm sure I'm also gonna have like, you know, 1-800-273-TALK if other people are listening to the show um, and, that are not professionals. So I will definitely link some of the resources that, that I've found helpful over the years. And I'm really curious, I think this will be the question that many professionals would want me to ask you. What advice, like in, to this point of being competent, what advice do you have for therapists, especially about like estimating risk, estimating danger? Mm-hmm. Good question. Although I just want to backtrack on a little and say, um, I would also, if you feel comfortable doing it, I would also recommend putting CAMS care on your show notes. Uh, that's the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality. And I will put that as well. Yeah, it's by David Jobes, and he wrote the book Managing Suicidal Risk. Wonderful. And, and our philosophies are very aligned because in, in, in fact, in my book, I, I talk about cams and I quote him um, in various places, but they're very aligned around trying to join with the suicidal person rather than trying to immediately shut it, shut them down, you know, rather than immediately, um, you know, trying to talk them out of it or, or help them feel better. I mean, of course we want to help them feel better, but first we need to be present with them in their pain. And so he talks about that a lot too. Um, but your question was, will you repeat it? Right before I repeat it, I will add, I have not used this measure before, but I, and when you describe it, I have a feeling that I will really appreciate it. I, the, one of the reasons that I like the C um, SSRS training is that there's a little training you can do in a certificate that prints out. And so I think that especially for trainees, I had my trainees do this so that they can complete something, get a little bit of feedback, have a certificate to that point of competence that we were talking about earlier. Uh, but I, I don't feel that the, some of the resources I've used in the past have emphasized uh, perspective taking and joining with the suicidal person. Um, so I really look forward to that resource. My question is from before is, what advice or tips do you have for therapists for estimating risk or danger? Um, yes, uh, very good question. Although now I'm just, I, I want to check something really quickly. Okay. Sure. I, I have a fear. I want to make sure I got the title right to that book. So, um, I just want to check it. Yes. Managing suicidal risk, a collaborative approach. Uh, I love that subtitle. Um, so advice around assessing risk. Is that uh, in yeah, estimating I, I, risk? This is, I think this goes back to that 
that element of the fear of competence. I think people are always looking for trying to understand this. And, and there's something about reading a book about this that just doesn't sit with people quite the same as, you know, hearing a, someone like you speak about it, an expert, you know, in their own words, a human being talking about this. I, I think people would just love to hear this in your own words. Sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, I teach a class at DU um, on suicide assessment and intervention. And so I've taught, you know, hundreds of students over the years on this. And also I do trainings in the community. And what I encounter most often is that people often, when they're interviewing a client about suicide, suicidal thoughts, they're thinking of themselves and their own anxiety and what they need to document and what they need to, what information they need to have in case something happens. And, you know, and they're not being present with the person. And so you've mentioned the Columbia and the Columbia is good, but one of the things that I don't like about risk assessment instruments, one is that there's not evidence that they work, but another, <laughs> another piece, I mean, they're helpful. I think they're very helpful. In they, give people, they give people a structure when they're like, what do I do, Annie? What do I do? It's, exactly. <laughs> I think they're helpful in terms of providing that structure you're talking about and also providing, um, and maybe this is structure, a, a means by which to formulate your own thoughts and your, your conception of risk, conceptualization of risk. But, but what I don't like about um, risk assessment instruments is they can become like an interrogation or a checklist mm-hmm. where the clinician is really only meeting their needs and not meeting the client's needs. Because I, I've said this before, so um, if anyone's heard me do a podcast before, this will sound repetitive, but I have never met anybody who says, I feel so bad that I want to die. And what would help me feel better is to answer 20 yes, no questions about my risk factors. You know, I mean, the, the average person, I mean, I think this is, you know, how we're wired, we're wired for connection and relationship and, and the average person wants to tell their story and to be, you know, to be able to be heard and understood and accepted And of course, I'm making a big assumption because there's some people who don't want to tell their story and don't want to talk about their suicidal thoughts. And, you know, that's a whole other topic. But when there are people who come to you for help and they tell you they're having suicidal thoughts and the very first thing you say is, do you have a plan? Do you have the means? Do you have the intent to act on this plan? You know, that can be very, that can be disconnecting. And so what I try to, um, well, I'm sorry. I I was just going to say, you know, I think the way that I've been trained is, is very heavily in motivational interviewing. So what I often do is ask open-ended questions and then use reflections. And in that process, in my mind, you know, I have the boxes that I'm checking and I'm making a note as the person is telling me their story so that I cover all the ground I need to cover um, although I, I will be honest, and I know that that might not be the way that these assessments are in, initially designed to be administered, um, but I, yeah, I, I might not necessarily ask certain of these questions uh, 
in, in the manner that they're written out, even though I might be documenting the information. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I, I talk to people and they sometimes tell me that information without me pop, 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 pop with the questions. Oh, it totally makes sense. And that's exactly what I try to teach my students is that rather than launching into a lot of risk assessment questions, if we could just invite the person to tell us their story, a lot of those questions will get answered without our asking them. And I mean, I, I didn't make this up. This is something that um, um, you know, has been written about in terms of collaborative interviewing with somebody who has suicidal thoughts. And there's actually research, uh, uh, it, and there's actually a whole intervention program. Um, the Assisted Suicide Short Intervention Program, I think is what it's called. And, and they've done research where they ask people, can you tell me the story of how you came to think of suicide? And that using the words tell and story yield more information. But, but I also hesitate to say that because I don't want people to get all hung up on, oh my God, I have to use the exact right words. The important thing is, you know, rather than immediately launching into questions, just asking an open-ended question, exactly like you're saying, Annie. Um, asking. I, I think the advice is if you want to feel comfortable doing this, do it hundreds of times. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say to a person that's like, I'm afraid I don't even want to do this once, but I, I, that's only advice that, that I always come back to is like, yeah, and the 500th time you ask about this, it's easier because you already know the boxes in your mind that you're checking of the information but it, on the first time through you're holding your scripts with the white knuckles and you're like i've got to ask these questions well and and i do a video assignment in my class where students do a role play with each other and they video record it and then yeah. um i evaluate it and i'm not really grading them on their performance as much as on their reflection of you know how they did and everything and um in it's really valuable for people to do that practice. And it makes me think of in my own MSW program, I remember we had a sex therapist come and talk to class and she said, stand in the mirror and repeat to yourself aloud all the words that are hard for you to say to a client. Exposure, yep. exposure. <laughs> and, and I think there's, you know, even though it's contrived and the person isn't there, I think there's great value in that, in, in practicing. And not only because you're, you're practicing and the repetition helps disinhibit you, but also because you're observing what it brings up for you, mm -hmm. you know, and that's something like in that video assignment, there are students who in a 20 minute interview with their mock client, never use the word suicide or kill yourself or end your life or anything direct about suicide. And they don't even realize it until they watch the video. Mm -hmm. And then they see how much they were saying things like, um, you know, maybe the client broached the topic. And then throughout the interview, the, 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 the student in the clinician's role keeps referring to those thoughts. How often do you have those thoughts? When do those thoughts come to you? You know, um, do you have a plan to act on those thoughts? And they never say the word. And so rehearsing i think has great value i yeah i, I really couldn't agree more and i know just for the sake of time i i would love to hear if there's any other 
tips or things where you're like, oh, I really want to make sure to touch on this um, advice because we've kind of covered like two ideas so far. And just what other ideas do you feel like would be really helpful almost as an advertisement of like, hey, this is just a snippet and you really need to go read this book. I, I'll keep coming back to you, but yeah, I'd love to hear. Well, thank you, Annie. I appreciate that. Um, well, I would say uh, it doesn't stop with risk assessment. You know, so much of what is written about helping suicidal people is, is about assessing risk, managing risk and liability, which includes creating a safety plan and talking about access to means. And then it stops. And that's why I wrote this book is because I wanted a book that gave concrete tips on things you can do to try to help somebody um, ease their suffering to, that is you know, fueling their suicidal desire, to try to help somebody build hope to solve their problems, to challenge their thoughts, to build acceptance where things can't be changed, you know, to um, learn from their suicidal crisis. You know, those are different sections in the book just off the top of my head. I'm sure I've left some off. Um, but that's, you know, I wrote the book. Initially, I wasn't going to put risk assessment in the book because I just wanted to be able to talk about tools to help somebody who has suicidal thoughts. But then I realized, no, come <laughs> on, people need to do that too. And um, so, so the book is from start to finish and starting even before somebody ever meets a suicidal client um, with exploring their own views about suicide because our own biases and our own experiences with suicide shape how we are with clients. There's, there's no neutrality when it comes to suicide because if somebody says to me, I'm neutral about suicide and suicide prevention, well, that means they have a bias. That means they believe that there shouldn't be intervention and people should be um, allowed or enabled to, to end their life without intervention, you know, and that's a bias. So my, um, my third key point that I guess I would make is to uh, not, uh, not just focus on trying to help someone stay alive, but focus on trying to help someone have reasons to stay alive, to want to stay alive. You know, and, and I get a lot of criticism from people who don't support suicide prevention. They believe that people should be given the right and the means to end their life um, if they want to. And this is particularly on my website where I get a lot of pushback in the comments I receive from people, some very, very angry at me for, um, working in the field of suicide prevention. But one of the points that they make that I think is really something for us to think about as mental health professionals is they say, you don't care about my life. You just care about my staying alive. And I've really taken that to heart in my work over the years that if we're helping someone stay alive, but they're still in pain and suffering and feeling hopeless, Maybe, you know, if we're not doing anything to help that, help them feel better, then that's not a humane approach. If our primary focus is just on survival, we need to also focus on um, healing and, and growth, which, 
Yeah, can, can it, I it, just... come, it comes to logic. Uh, what I hear and what you're saying is that when people are in so much pain and the only thing that they can think of that will reduce their pain is suicide, it's it, it's they're thinking from a, a and, and it sounds like almost harsh to say this, but at, in that moment, it feels logical. And I think that to your point, we can't just leave people in that state of excruciating pain if we keep people alive, it's important to not only reduce their pain, but to create a world worth living in. Exactly, exactly. It is logical. I mean, um, it's a way to solve a problem in their mind, you know? And I, I know some people, they don't like that language because they say it's not a solution. Suicide isn't a solution. But to somebody who has suicidal thoughts, suicide is a solution and we need to understand that and understand what problems it would solve for them. The other thing I want to say is some of what I'm saying is very elementary. Of course, we want to help people not feel pain. I mean, that's why we're in this field is to help people feel better. I mean, it's psychotherapy. So I don't mean to be talking down to people and say, oh, you need to help people feel better. Of course. I mean, that's a given. However, when people, when clinicians get caught in their fears they can lose sight of the of course and be focusing um, uh, so much on the person staying alive that they, they aren't spending as much time as they could or even should on helping the person uh, uh, want to stay alive. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it just comes to me back to the idea of that anxiety is focused in either usually the past or in the future, and it takes you away from the present moment. So as a therapist, if you can't manage your anxiety and sit with people and walk with people, I mean, you're missing out on, I mean, for a lot of us, the reason that we became therapists. Exactly. And I think it's so clear in, in every other problem, except for suicide and perhaps homicidal risk as well. Like I think with everything else, it's much easier for clinicians to, to step aside from their own needs and anxiety and really be present with a client. Um, yes. And speaking of the present moment, I'm smiling right now because I don't know if you can hear it, but my dog is snoring very loudly near me Can't. oh thank god uh because i was trying to <laughs> trying to be at the present moment but his snoring was really taking me away from it and <laughs> i am so glad to have humor in this podcast because i don't know that we had covered that yet um but but i think that can be another problem if you are like married to your checklist and you're worried about 25 things that are going to happen you will miss if if humor is a part of your personality or a part of your patients or clients personality you will miss anything related to that and and you know so i i don't know i think that that's another thing where it's like a strength sometimes in the middle of these situations that are very tense um to be able to be present and and enjoy a moment with someone uh, every once in a while it, it it sounds like how could that be Annie? how could that be that somebody makes uh you know a joke about an unrelated topic um but it, it happens all the time you know like i and i don't know how to describe it in any other way if especially i've i've worked with clients that have where their sense of humor is one of their main reasons to live. Mm -hmm. So well, it's like, if you, if you miss that because you're, and your nose is on your checklist, it's like, you're missing out on that helping the other person 
element, I think. Yeah, and I mean, humor is a major coping skill for many, many people, myself included. Not that I'm a hilarious person, but <laughs> but I do, you know, use humor in even painful situations as a way to, to release, you know, anxiety or fear or, or sadness or whatever. But the other piece is, I think, you know, what you're calling humor, I would also just call spontaneity or flexibility yeah. or even playfulness that like, if we, you know, anxiety constricts us, Yes. And if we're able to practice from a place of acceptance, like you were talking about earlier, and really lean into the present moment, then, then we can be more flexible and spontaneous than we might otherwise be. Yeah. Well, I don't think that I will say anything uh, better than that. So I, I'm, I'm thinking here, just for the sake of time, that I, I'm thinking of wrapping things up, and I just want to make sure to thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and see if there's anything else that, that you wanted to mention before we sign off. Um, I don't think so, Annie. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for, for um, having it with me. No, thank you. All right, I'm going to go click stopping on the recording. We hope you liked the show. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Queen Behavior Change. And on TikTok and at Twitter at Queen BEE Change. Queen BEE Change. Thanks again. Talk to you soon.